psalm reading tonight is from Psalm 72. Uh, Psalm 72, which the uh, superscription says is of Solomon. And if you uh, look ahead to the very uh, last verse in Psalm 72, closing off book two of the Psalms, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And and so I think we're um, not to take this as a psalm that is uh, by Solomon, but rather a prayer uh, by David that is of or about Solomon, as uh, David is uh, coming towards the end of, of his reign, books one and two of the, the Psalter, are sort of about the, the rise of the Davidic kingdom. Uh, book three will take us, books three and four, into the, the period of the exile. And so David here, towards the end of his life, is reflecting on the prayers, or the, the promises that God has made regarding the king who would come from his line. And uh, here he he prays God's promises back to him, a prayer that is ultimately fulfilled, not in Solomon, but in the greater than Solomon, our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor, the people, Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river To the ends of the earth, may desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and needy. Saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its Fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, I'm sing that psalm, Psalm 72b. Hail to the Lord's anointed. We'll remain seated to sing all the stanzas. Number 72b.
before the Lord now in prayer. Father in heaven, with David, who prayed for the coming of your kingdom and for the advance of the kingdom of your son, we pray this second petition prayer from Psalm 72, that the kingdom of your son would ever increase, that his name and his fame would ever continue, that his glory would fill the earth. Lord, we thank you that Christ is that king who defends the cause of the poor, who gives deliverance to the children of the needy. We thank you that he has come at his first advent and at the cross crushed the oppressor and will one day come again and deal that final fatal blow, that singular oppressor and enemy, that serpent. Lord, we thank you that his defeat has already been guaranteed at the cross, that Christ would bring justice, and that uh, your church, Lord, we uh, pray that your church would um, increasingly be characterized by the justice of our King there in that psalm, as well as in so many of the, um, the Advent prophecies in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, speaks of the coming kingdom of the just and righteous king. And so, Lord, we pray that your church and the world in which we live would increasingly be characterized by that justice. We lament the evils and injustices that are all about us in the world and the church. We pray that by your word and spirit, justice, and righteousness would reign, the peace of which this psalm speaks, that Christ's dominion would be from the river to the ends of the earth, and that the nations would indeed bow down and worship as this psalm prophesies, like the magi from afar in whom we see something of a fulfillment of this psalm, bringing their gifts and their treasures to lay down before the king. Lord, we pray that you would continue to draw the nations to yourself. Pray that you would have pity on the weak and the needy, even weak and needy sinners like us. That you would save the lives of the needy and redeem from oppression and violence, kinds of abuse and injustice that exist in our world. Lord, we thank you for assuring us in this psalm that Christ is a just king who loves righteousness. We pray that you would make us more like him, that I mean, this next year you would ever be conforming us to the image of this perfect king, that his kingdom would ever increase, even in this next year, and that 2024 would be a year in which we see great advances for the sake of the gospel. Lord, as we reflect on the year that is now coming to a close, we thank you for your faithfulness to each one of your people, and we thank you for the advance of the gospel for churches that have been planted, for uh, children who have been baptized, for uh, members who have uh, joined here or made profession of faith, and uh, not only here, but in uh, many, many other places. We thank you that our king, our just king, is ever 
advancing his righteous reign even in the hearts of those who once were estranged from him, once rebelled against him, but have gladly been made subjects of the king. And Father, we pray for more of this in the year to come, for more um, churches to be planted, neighbors to be evangelized, uh, young men to be sent off to prepare for the ministry. Pray that you would even be preparing the hearts, perhaps, of some here to serve you in that capacity. Let we pray for the coming of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus in our own hearts, that you would make us more and more to desire him, that you would rule us by your word and spirit, so that more and more we submit to you, that you would preserve and increase your church both here and in every nation, and that you would indeed, as it says in that psalm, crush the oppressor, that you would destroy the devil's work, every force that revolts against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word, defending the weak, defending your persecuted saints whose blood is precious in your sight and whose groans you hear. Lord, we pray for the defeat of all evil, We pray for the full coming of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, when he will be all in all. And we pray it again as we close the year of 2023. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make us now by your word and spirit to desire that more and more as we enter into this next year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing as our um, song of preparation, Psalm 27b. Jehovah is my light. We'll sing stanzas 3, 6, and 10, and we'll, uh, we'll stand to do so. Psalm 27b.
uh, read that same psalm, Psalm 27, another psalm of David. We'll um, read the whole psalm where David, as we end this year, teaches us what it is that we should desire most um, throughout our lives and uh, certainly also in the year to come. Psalm of David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent, he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Beloved, the context of Psalm 27, as you read through the Psalter sequentially, is that in Psalm 25 and Psalm 26, David is in desperate need. He's lonely and afflicted. He says that the wantonly treacherous seek his life and lay traps for him. They bring false accusations against him. You see that in the prayer for vindication that is Psalm 26, just before this, a prayer that God would acquit him of, of charges that are not true, which continues in Psalm 27. You, you see that um, line in verse 12, again, about uh, false witnesses breathing out violence. The same bloodthirsty man of Psalm 26, verse 9, who want to have David killed. And yet he cries out in both Psalm 26, 12, and again in Psalm 27, 11, for God to lift him up, and to place his feet on level ground or, or a level path, a, a confidence that God will not give him over to the will of his adversaries. But, but David is confident 
that he will stand in, in that great assembly of Psalm 26, 12, the, the land of the living, he speaks of the end of Psalm 27. That there he will bless the Lord and look upon his goodness. Um, there is in both of these psalms a, a desire to look upon God's presence. In Psalm 26, David wants to, to go around God's altar. He says in verses 6 through 8 that he loves the habitation of God's house, the place where his glory dwells. Now as we turn the page into Psalm 27, once again, dwelling in that place is the one thing that David seeks after. His life is in danger because of wicked men who bring false accusations against him, but he trusts the Lord. And what he desires most is to behold God's beauty in his tabernacle. That's the one thing that David seeks after. He says it is the one thing that his heart desires. In other words, his prayer for God to save him in Psalm 27 is so that he might worship God in God's house. I think we learn something from this psalm about the one thing that not only David desires, but the one thing that we should desire also. One thing that we should, should make it our, our aim to desire more and more of as we enter into another year to behold God's beauty and to dwell in his presence. And as David's one all-consuming passion and should be ours too. As it was not only David's, but as it was also Christ's, who much like David in this psalm, when wicked men breathed out violence against him and false accusations, trusted the Lord to deliver him into his presence. And this evening, as we close the year in worship, I want to look at this psalm really from three vantage points. First, as... Um, a David's confident cry to behold God's beauty, and it's Christ's confident cry, and finally the Christian's confident cry in Christ. And uh, my prayer is that God would use it to make us also more and more desire this one thing. Let's look at me first at uh, David's confident cry. It's the cry that we see is in the midst of darkness. And a cry that's in the midst of danger. We see that from verse 1, where those two images that David uses of God being, on the one hand, his light, and on the other hand, his, his stronghold, imply that, that David is in a dark place in need of light, and that David is in a battle in need of protection. Where he says, evildoers assail him. They want to eat up his flesh. He says that an army encamps against him. Verse 3, war arises against him. I take this to be threat of, of actual death in one of those times where David is on the run from an army, perhaps that of Saul, who sought his life with false accusations and words of violence, like we see in verse 12. I sought to devour him and eat up his flesh. Like the ravenous dogs and lions of Psalm 22, David speaks of these enemies metaphorically trying to devour him. And because they are... On account of that, he's, he's running for his life, so he, he's not able to come into God's presence in the place of public worship that is the tabernacle. He's, he's cut off from access to it as if he's in exile. And yet we see at several points throughout this psalm that this is the one thing he desires most. 
You see it in verse 4. And he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. And then we see it again in verse 6. This same desire, his confidence that God will lift him up to a place of victory in the presence of his enemies. To, to what end? But that he might then go into God's tent with a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Again, he's speaking of going into the place of worship to um, offer an act of worship. And, and then again in verses 8 and 9. We see him once again seeking God's face, lamenting the very idea of God's special presence remaining hidden from him, which he then overcomes in verse 13 as he confidently declares that he will look upon it in the land of the living. In every section of this psalm, David expresses his earnest, singular desire to be brought into God's presence, to behold his face unhindered. That is his heart's desire. As he cries out for it in this psalm, he's confident that God will grant him his heart's desire. We see that confidence in verse 1. Where he says that he has nothing to fear because God is his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. Remember, he's promised that David will sit on the throne. And so David is confident that the schemes of his enemy will not succeed. What David does here, and we can learn a lesson from this, is, is he looks at, at God's promise, and then he looks at, at the pressures all around him, and he says, in light of God's promise, I will not fear what can man do to me, of whom shall I be afraid? Um, John Calvin said that, that what David does here is he, he weighs his, his troubles against God, and he considers God as far outweighing them. He weighs into scales the whole power of earth and hell and counts it lighter than a feather in comparison to God who far outweighs the whole. The answer, Calvin says, to our fear when we're feeling overwhelmed is a bigger view of God. Or as Ed Welch has, has written, when, when people are big and God is small, become fearful, become anxious, but when God is big in our mind's eye, those people and, and those enemies become small. In other words, the way to put to flight our, our fears, whatever fears we may have as we enter into another new year, is by looking to our strong God, reminding ourselves that he is for us. That's what David does in verse 1, leading him to believe in verse 2 that his enemies will stumble. He says, it is they who stumble and fall, though, though a whole army encamp against me. My heart will not fear, but will be confident. And that confidence includes, in verse 4, a confidence that God will grant David the one thing for which he has asked, that he might dwell in God's house all his days to inquire in his temple and to gaze upon his beauty. David is confident that God will deliver him from death and bring him back from exile to do just that, to worship him. Although he is at present banished from his country, bereft from his family, as, as verse 10 may suggest, and, and dispossessed of all he has, what David desires most is not the recovery of these things, but restoration into God's presence in his sanctuary. 
That's what he longs for most. Again, to quote Calvin, it was more bitter for David to be exiled from God's house than denied access to his own house. The thing he desires most is to go into God's presence and gaze upon his beauty. God's beauty and his gracious condescension that was symbolized in the very presence of, of a temple where God would dwell with man. God's beauty and the atonement that was there made in that place. God's beauty and the revelation that there in the tabernacle of the temple was given. That, that's what David longed to see, the beauty of God who, who condescends by grace to meet with his people, who, who gives us his law that we might know his will for us and who makes atonement for our sins. David longed to see God's beauty in those ways. And because of the promises that God had made to David, David is confident that he will. That God will hide him in his shelter. That he will deliver him in the day of his trouble. That he will conceal him and, and, and cover him under his tent and lift him high on a rock and, and lift his head above his enemies that he might go into God's tent and offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. The end goal of David's deliverance is to worship God in his temple. That's what he desires. That's what he believes God will do. That's what makes him cry out in verse 7, saying, Lord, you have said, seek my face, and my heart says, your face do I seek. Don't hide it from me. Don't turn away your, your face in anger and cast me off, but let me see it. That, that's the heart of David's cry in verses 7 to 10. He's, it, it's the reason why he says, lead me on a level path and don't give me over to the will of my adversaries who breathe out violence, but deliver me from death so that I may look upon your goodness. You see that again at the end of the psalm. Same thing for which he asked in verse 4 and verse 8, to look upon God's beauty. Once again, he longs for, in verse 13, to look upon the goodness of the Lord. It's, it's that for which he waits in verse 14. His all-consuming passion, his one desire, is to gaze upon God's beauty in God's house. As David says elsewhere in Psalm 69, zeal for God's house consumes him. Or as he said in Psalm 26, just before this, he loves the habitation of God's house, the place where God's glory dwells. As we take this same psalm upon our lips, we're meant to ask ourselves the question whether we can say this ourselves. Whether you can say what David here says, that you love to go to the place where God meets with his people because it is there, here, that you gaze upon his beauty in word and sacraments. That you gaze upon the beauty of God in, in his gracious condescension, the very fact that he meets with his people, the, the beauty of God in, in revealing his very self to us in his word, and the beauty of God and the atonement that we come to celebrate and be assured of. Gazing upon that beauty is David's singular desire. And so he speaks to himself in verse 14 and says, wait. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait 
or the Lord's. Trust that in his time he will bring you into his presence. That's how Psalm 27 ends, with with God's king in danger, having expressed his desire, and now depending on God to answer. And I, I would suggest that in the king's desire in the midst of danger... And in his dependence on the Lord to to bring him back into his presence as promised, we see here a shadow of David's son. The confident cry not only of David, but the confident cry of the Christ of Calvary. Who also knew the darkness of which David spoke. The darkness of Gethsemane, those, those uh, three hours on the cross of, of Calvary where darkness covered the, covered the earth. And yet even in the midst of that darkness, Christ did not fear because God was his light, his fortress against those armies encamped against him, in his case, literal armies. The false witnesses of, of verse 12, in whom are a shadow of, of the false witnesses in Matthew 26, who seek to kill David's son by coming out with all kinds of lies, breathing out violence. He tried to devour his flesh, verse 2. Which, as I said, I don't, don't take as a, a reference to cannibalism, but the, the picture here is that of Psalm 22. These enemies are like ravenous lions. Their, their mouths opened up that they might consume him. I think David is saying the same thing here that he does in Psalm 22, verses 13 and 16. Whereas we know there, uh, David was speaking as a prophet of the Christ to come. So here... Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of of Psalm 27. I think the Gospels actually give us a little nod in this direction in John chapter 18, when when Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is approached by by, by an an army of soldiers, a a band of soldiers who come against Christ in Gethsemane. And it says that they stumble and fall when Christ identifies himself to them. Remember how, how Jesus steps forward and he says, I am he. I'm the Christ that you're looking for. And it says that as he said that, they then drew back and fell to the ground. I think John includes that there as a nod to Psalm 27, verse 2. An army of adversaries and foes induced by false witnesses rise up against the king to devour him and seek his life, yet he does not fear, but it's they who stumble and fall as a little harbinger of their eventual demise and his deliverance where God will deliver his king in the day of his trouble and lift him high upon a rock, lifting his head above his enemies all around him. And that language that that the psalm uses here of of lifting his head is actually language of military victory. It's the same language that's used of, of messianic psalms like Psalm 110, where it says of that priest king after the order of Melchizedek that he will drink from the brook by the way and lift up his head. Or the same language used in, in Psalm 3. It speaks of, of um, God delivering his king from his enemies and restoring him to the royal honor that they sought to rob him of, and lifting up his head. That's what Christ, God does for Christ in his day of trouble. He lifts up his head in the resurrection where he declares him to be the son of God in power. It exalts him to the highest place, bringing him in to his heavenly temple with shouts of joy. Does the very movement of this psalm not sound a little bit like one of resurrection and ascension? 
Where, where though David in this psalm is speaking of his confidence in God saving him from death, these words equally apply to Christ being saved through death. And just as David, when exiled from God's presence in the sanctuary, looked forward to his deliverance, meaning that he would have access back into that place of God's presence. So Christ, when exiled, so to speak, from God's heavenly presence to which the tabernacle pointed, he trusted that God would restore him back into his presence, not by saving him from death, but through it. Where he would be glorious in the presence of his enemies, his head lifted high in victory to enter in to God's heavenly tent of verse 6 with shouts of praise. The land of the living, of which verse 13 speaks, where he looks upon the goodness of the Lord. The house of the Lord, in verse 4, in which he, he longed to dwell all the days of his life, in Psalm 23. Every line of this psalm is applicable not only to David, but to his son, in whose confident cry David's found its echo. Just as David said, I will not fear, for God is my light, so Christ could say, the darkness of Gethsemane and the darkness of the cross, Jehovah is my light, whom shall I fear? As David's enemies stumbled and fell, so Christ, as David longed in the midst of, of his exile from the temple to be brought back into God's glorious presence, so Christ longed to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life and to gaze upon his beauty. His head lifted high in victory to then enter in with shouts of praise. As David sought his face, and said, hide not your face from me, so Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as David spoke in verse 10 of, of, of the possibility of even his family and those closest to him forsaking him, so Christ knew what it was to have his own family, Mark chapter 3, think that he was out of his mind. Or to have one of his closest friends betray him. Or to have his disciples flee, or to, to have his close inner circle of three fall asleep at his hour of greatest need. Jesus knew that the loneliness and forsakenness of verse 10, of which David spoke. He says, the Lord took him in, saying, this is my beloved son. In fact, many commentators actually think that verse 10 has royal connotations, hearkening back to that idea in Psalm 2 of the king being God's royal son, who even if mother and father forsake him, God takes him in and says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. But he leads him on level ground. He gives him not up to the will of his adversaries who breathe out violence with their false accusations, but delivers him into the land of the living. We will look upon the goodness of the Lord all the days of his life. This psalm of David is echoed in the experience of Christ who would have sang this psalm during his earthly sojourn and found great comfort in it, knowing that what was true of his father David was true of him. And in Christ is true also of you as David's confident cry, which becomes Christ's confident cry, by union with Christ is given also to us that we might sing it with him. As Andrew Bonar said, because the church's head can lay claim to every clause of this blessed psalm, so may the church. 
Jesus tells us on the road to Emmaus that all of what is written in the law and the prophets and also the Psalms speaks of him. Uh, we, we see that, for, for example, in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, where in Hebrews 1 and 2 there's about uh, 10 psalms, and not, not just your, your Psalm 22s or, or Psalm 110s, but, but, but this assortment of, of what appear to be the, the most random psalms that, that at first we might not think are speaking of Christ, but the author of Hebrews uh, says that all of them speak of him. And so we see from the New Testament, we see from the fact that, that 41% of, of the, the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament that are applied to Christ or from the Psalms, we, we see from that, that that Christ is the ultimate uh, subject and even singer of the Psalms. And yet that doesn't mean that they have nothing to say to us, because we are united with Christ, the ultimate singer and subject of the Psalms. And so, as, as Bonar says, because he can lay claim to every clause of this blessed Psalm, so may we. Indeed, he becomes the very reason for the confidence of which this Psalm speaks. As he is our light, the end of verse 1, the light of the world, for whose sake we need not fear. Even when enemies and evildoers assail us, we can trust that he will deliver us, as we confess in Lord's Day 19, that he will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting destruction, but take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Or he will make us gaze upon the beauty of God in his own person. The Second Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 say that, that the beauty and glory of God are, are revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so that for which the, the psalmist longed, as we sing this psalm, it is fulfilled, will be fulfilled, in beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Remember, that's the same thing that, Mar that uh, Mary beheld. As Martha was busy at work while Mary lay at the feet of Christ, but Jesus said, Mary has chosen the good portion, the one thing necessary, gazing upon his beauty. The Christian, verse 4, is fulfilled in looking to Jesus and seeing the beauty of God of the temple that is the person of Jesus Christ who, who graciously condescends to reveal God's will to us, and to make atonement for us. We gaze upon that beauty in part now through word and sacrament as we gather for public worship. This gazing upon the beauty of Christ of which this psalm speaks will find its full realization in that heavenly temple we will gaze upon the beauty of Christ forever. As he restores us not just from death, but through death into his presence with shouts of joy to seek his face and look upon his goodness in the land of the living all the days of our life. As we'll sing a bit later, the king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There too in ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Where the bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face, 
I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not on the crown he gifteth, but at his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And that hymn, which we'll sing in a few moments, was based on the letters of Samuel Rutherford and the great longing that he expressed for this one thing that we are to seek after, to gaze upon the beauty of our bridegroom and king in his heavenly temple, the land of the living for all eternity. He wrote, Our love to him should begin on earth as it will be in heaven, for the bride taketh not by a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garments as she does in her bridegroom. And so we in the life to come, howbeit clothed with glory as with her robe, shall not be so much affected with the glory that goeth about us as with the bridegroom's joyful face and presence. Worth dying, he said, ten times to see just a sight of him. Ten thousand deaths were no great price to give for him, the, the fairest flower of heaven, the loveliest person among the children of men who graces heaven and all his father's house with his presence is a rose that beautifies all the upper garden of God. I would not exchange him for ten worlds of glory, Rutherford says. How ravishing his beauty is and how sweet and powerful his voice. I would rather look through, through the whole of Christ's door and see but one half of his fairest and most beautiful face than to enjoy the flower and bloom and chiefest excellency of ten worlds. But the beauty of ten thousand thousand worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one, put all trees and flowers, smells, colors, tastes, joys, sweetness, loveliness in one, and yet it would be less to that, that fairest and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. He is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. He is all together lovely. Rutherford knew something of that longing that the psalmist expressed in verse 4, to behold the glory and the beauty of God in the face of Christ. His well-beloved chief among 10,000, the fairest flower of heaven, the beautiful one of whom the bride sings in the song of songs, the angels in heaven never tire of praising. Could you say with Rutherford that you would rather look through the whole of Christ's door to see but one half of his most beautiful face and to enjoy the riches and glory and beauty of ten worlds. Or that if you put all the, the beauty of, of, of ten thousand paradises together, it would be but one drop in comparison to the ocean of Christ's beauty that we will behold all the days of our life as we worship him in glory. Do you long for that like David did? like Rutherford and Edwards, and until you get that vision, you cry out with them in verses 7 to 10, saying, Lord, let me see your face. Confident, verse 13, that you will. That you will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living for all eternity, and it will satisfy you like nothing else can. 
You see, this psalm is meant to move us more and more to desire this one thing, to behold the beauty and the glory of God in his heavenly temple and to rejoice in it all the days of our life. Even as we face enemies like David and Christ do throughout this psalm, even that last enemy of death, trusting the Lord will deliver us into his presence and will gaze upon his beauty forever. By grace through faith, because of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross who makes a way for us, who graciously condescends to make atonement for us, that we might behold God's beautiful face both now and forever. That, beloved, is the the blessed hope, the beatific vision for which we were made. And for which we wait with the psalmist in verse 14, confident that glory awaits us. Jehovah is our light and we need not fear. For there is coming a day when the brightness of his beauty will fill the earth. and There will be no more darkness, no more need of sun or moon. For the glory of God in Christ will be our light and he will swallow up death forever. And behold his face. That's the hope with which the the Bible ends. That's the the hope that strengthens us in the trials of this life. The brightness of the beauty that awaits us, which far outweighs the trials of this life. And so with David, speak to yourself in verse 14. And say, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage. Don't listen to yourself in the midst of whatever trials you might face in 2024. But speak to yourself this gospel hope that you will look upon the goodness and beauty of the Lord and the land of the living all the days of your life. Even so, come Lord Jesus. May the Lord make us more and more to desire that in this next year. Amen. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would make this hope and desire more and more to be ours, that our one singular desire would be to behold your beauty. Like David, more than earthly needs and human fellowship, more than even the love of our own family, that we would long to behold your beauty, both now and every Lord's day as we gather in the place where you meet with us to behold the beauty of Christ in word and sacraments, and forever in glory, where Christ will be our light, that we will need no sun or moon nor light of lamp, for the Lamb will be our light in that heavenly temple where we behold your glory and beauty in the face of your Son, that fairest among 10,000. Help us, Lord, to long for that more and more in this next year. And help us to comprehend what David, what Rutherford, men like Edwards did about the all-surpassing beauty of Christ. So that would be our greatest joy both now and forever. It would help us even to overcome the trials and fears and afflictions of this life and of this next year. As we look ahead to glory, saying to our souls, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Even 
So come, Lord Jesus.